This is Warning Radio with Dr. Jonathan Hansen, founder and president of World Ministries International, a non-denominational end times ministry dedicated to fulfilling a divine commission to trumpet forth warnings from God concerning the imminent second coming of Christ and the impending judgment of God upon the ungodly. God has sent Dr. Hansen to many nations of the world with a solemn warning to the political and religious leaders and citizenry to repent of their sinfulness and wickedness or face the catastrophic judgments that will soon be unleashed upon the unbelieving world. Listen now to the warnings of our compassionate and merciful Creator conveyed through His faithful prophetic spokesman, the host of Warning Radio, Dr. Jonathan Hansen. This is Dr. Jonathan Hansen. I want to welcome you to the program, Warning. Today you're going to hear a message titled, The Parable of the Good Samaritan, by my assistant pastor at the time, Ty Goldstrom, recorded August 6, 2005. Enjoy. He found you in a place of need and he poured in the oil and the wine. We're going to talk about that today. If you could turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. You know, we need to get close to Jesus Christ. Amen? Yeah. Amen? Yeah. We need to be close to the Lord. Yeah. Why? Because you can't hear his voice clearly if you're not close to Jesus. Hallelujah. You know, when Jesus spoke that sermon on the mount and he said, you know, blessed are the peacemakers. And if you were close enough, you could hear the words and respond to the word. But if you were too far away doing your own thing, you might have been in the back 40 with kind of one ear open and you're hearing the Lord say, blessed are the cheesemakers. You can't quite hear his voice and pervert the message. You know, say, you know, the Lord said, blessed be the cheesemakers. We got to be close to the Lord so we can hear his word. Hallelujah. When we get into the twisting of the word or or not realizing or understanding the word of God, it's because we're on the fringe kind of looking in, trying to interpret the word of God. We got to plunge into a relationship with Jesus Christ because then you can hear the word of God. The word of God will read you and transform you. And you'll stop preaching the message, blessed are the cheesemakers. Because the world doesn't need that gospel. It doesn't need the gospel kind of mixed up with your own philosophy and opinion. Hallelujah. Let's get close to the Lord so we can actually hear his voice. Praise the Lord. Luke chapter 10 and verse 25. We're talking about the story of the Good Samaritan. I'm excited about this word because it's the word for today. It's the word for you today. I know that. It is the word today for this congregation, and it's going to minister in so many areas. I had a hard time with this word. The hardest time about preparing this word is I could have went so many directions. I had to really say, Lord, help me tomorrow. I know I'm going to try to get on the tangents. Bring me back quickly, because there's so many principles in this story. It's a story that if you've been born and raised in the church, you know the story very well, but I don't think it's been preached very much in where it can be preached. There's so much that can be pulled out of this story. Luke chapter 10 and verse 25 through 37. Why don't you stand as we read the word of God? I'm going to be reading in the NIV, and you can certainly, if you have that translation, can be reading along with me. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your hearts, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, and so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on the oil and the wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. And he said, look after him, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. You may be seated. Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word. We thank you, Lord God, that your word is sharp. We thank you, Father God, that if we will just open ourselves up to the ministry of your word, you will transform our lives. Father, it says in your word that the word of God is able to save my soul. It is able to come within me and it is able to purify and refine. Father, we give you permission today to let your word speak to us. We love you and we praise you, Lord, and we thank you for your written word. We thank you for the ministry of your Holy Spirit. And we pray, Father God, that as the word comes forth today, that it would transform lives. Bless the word. Bless each person here in Jesus' name. Can you say amen? Amen. amen. So in verse 25, it starts out the parable of the Good Samaritan with an expert in the law approaching Jesus Christ. Some translations, such as the King James, will say, a lawyer. Now, I don't know what you think about lawyers, but in this nation, in this culture, typically we have a pretty negative view of lawyers. But in the first century Jerusalem, it wasn't such a negative connotation. These are the ones that really knew the Word of God. They're the ones that had access to the Word of God. You know, in our culture, everyone has access to the Word of God. You can, anyone can go down to a bookstore and pick up the Bible. But I tell you what, in first century, that was not true. Most of it had to be by the oral communication of the Word of God. Not everyone owned their own scroll. And if you understand, they didn't have this nice typed small print. And what, they had scrolls. And you were usually one of the rich if you ever had a scroll with the Word of God. And so the experts in the law were very important because they're the ones that were responsible from taking this word, the word of God, and communicating it to the people. They were actually in Israel of high esteem. Amen? And so when you think of the name lawyer, I know you're like, ooh, those lawyers. You know, and I'm in the medical profession, so I, ooh, those lawyers. You know what I'm saying? They're, they're always looking for some way to, you know? Pass some law about getting more funds. It's always about 
lawsuits. And if you saw how much my malpractice was, you would cringe <laughs> because it's expensive. It's, I mean, it's, it's a lot of money. I just heard at my work, we have two full-time doctors and a nurse practitioner, two PAs. And I just found out what we spend per month on malpractice insurance for the whole group. And I was overwhelmed by how many thousands upon tens of thousands of dollars per month for malpractice insurance. So when I hear the word lawyer, ooh, I get a little twinge myself. But we can't read that into the text. Amen? We got to take our biases and our prejudice and we cannot read them into the text because the text was written in the first century and not in the 21st century. Amen. Hallelujah. Let the word of God speak out unto you. Don't put your biases and your prejudice into the word of God. The experts of the law, the lawyers were highly esteemed in that day. And he addressed Jesus as teacher. I think the King James says master and it's the word didaskalos, which naturally is a person who teaches. So he approached Jesus and called him teacher. The expert in the law, the lawyer, come into Jesus and saying, teacher, how or what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I've never really studied this parable. When I, the first thing that jumped out at me is, isn't it so natural for us to say, what must I do to inherit eternal life? If you look at the religions of this world, every single one of them, it's all about what must I do to have everlasting life? How do I get to heaven? Tell me the three things I've got to do. I'll do them and then I'll be assured that I can go to heaven. We're a very much a do-based thing. Make it pragmatic for me. Make it very obvious. Just write down for me, Jesus, the three or five things that I can do so that I can have the security that I'm going to heaven. This expert in the law this lawyer, the one who had all the access to the word of God, he approaches Jesus, calls him teacher and says, what must I do, teacher, to inherit eternal life? Amen? What must I do? Just spell it out for me. Make it simple, Lord. What must I do to inherit eternal life? See, his temptation to Christ was he wanted to challenge Jesus he had heard Jesus by sure. He's heard the preaching of Jesus. Jesus is saying, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father except by me. We hear so much in our society, you talk to people and they say, you recognize the word Jesus. And they say, oh yeah, Jesus. He was a great teacher. Amen? See what this lawyer called him? Teacher. He was a great teacher. He was a great philosopher. Right? But do you recognize what Jesus taught? Jesus taught that he is the Lord. He is the son of the living God. He taught that nobody comes to the Father except by me. It is only by the blood of Jesus Christ that can take away our sins. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it is only by the blood of Jesus Christ that man's sin has a remedy. See, this is what Jesus taught. So if you say Jesus is a good teacher... You better check what he taught. Because what he taught is to surrender your life, to bow your knee, and to confess your sins before him and say, Lord, I'm in need of a Savior. The Bible says so clearly that there's a way that seems right unto man. But in the end, it leads to death. We all come in life with our own philosophy, our own opinions, our own doctrine about how life should be run. You know what? Jesus really came to save you from that. He came to save you from yourself. 
your own opinions and philosophies. This is the way I think. If I just be a good person, if I just do these things, I will inherit eternal life. I'll be okay. Amen? So we all come to Christ with our own philosophies, our own way. And the Bible says so clearly that way leads to death. But if you'll confess your sins and ask the Lord to be the Savior of your life, that is the only way that you can have everlasting life. So this lawyer approaches Jesus and says, what must I do to have everlasting life? He was really trying to find out, was he the Messiah? Was he truly the Savior? You know, it says in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13, it says, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. You catch that? What must I do, Lord, to have everlasting life? You see, it's not about what you can do to have everlasting life. It's not a matter of doing. It's a matter of being. The Bible tells us that you must be in Christ Jesus. One person says, it's not what you profess with your mouth. You can say anything you want, but it's what you possess within. It must be the Holy Spirit within you that gives you everlasting life. Out of the being, we do the doing. I'm all for good works. But our good works do not justify us before a holy God. The Bible says clearly that even your good works are about filthy rags to God. It's not about you present all your good works and say, Lord, look at all these good works. Aren't you pleased with me? What he wants is you. It's a being, not a doing. The lawyer should have asked, not what can I do to inherit eternal life, but what must I be to inherit eternal life? That is the question. It's a doing versus a being. The doing part is the thing that our carnal nature wants to do. We just want the three simple principles of anything. If you do this, then this. I want to lose weight. One, two, three, done. Right? We want the simple, quick, fix solution. What must I do? Just tell me quickly so I can do it and justify myself. Philippians chapter 2 and 13, again it says, For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do you see that? That the outlet of our lives, the doing of our lives, you cannot do the will of God. You cannot do the purpose of God. It is God through you that acts out his will and his purpose. We are utterly dependent on the Lord Jesus Christ to do his good pleasure. It says in John 15, 5, I am the vine, Jesus said, and you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you will do nothing. You see, the doing part, you can do nothing apart from Jesus Christ. If you do not have relationship with Jesus Christ, Jesus says it so clearly, you can do nothing that produces spiritual fruit. How do you produce spiritual seed if your spirit is not born again? Amen? Amen. Remember Jesus' discourse with Nicodemus, another expert in the law, another Pharisee, another one that had access to the word of God. And he taught Nicodemus that you must be what? Born again. You must be regenerated. Your spirit is dead to the things of God. 
It's dead to the things of God. You must allow your spirit to be reborn by relationship with Jesus Christ. And then out of that being, now we are remaining in Christ and we're able to produce fruits for the kingdom of God. We got to make sure that our external things, our doings, are birthed out of the spirit within us. There are many things that are good works to the natural man, but they're birthed in the soul of man. Anyone can go out and offer up a cup of water to someone who has thirst. But Jesus says, if you'll offer a cup of water in my name, in my character, in relationship with me, hallelujah. It comes down to the motivation of the heart. He wants to come and cleanse the motivations of our heart. Why do we do the things that we do? Many people I've met go on mission trips, give to the poor and everything else. Why? Because they want to do the things to give them everlasting life. They want to protect themselves. They want to say, I'm okay. I give to the poor. I do this. I do that. I'm okay. And Jesus says it's not about doing. It's about being. You must be in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. Verse 26 goes on to say, Jesus wants to probe a little further. How often when someone asks us a question, a theological question, we just want to try to spit out the answer. I like Jesus' reply here. What does he say? He turns the question right back and says, wait, 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 you are the expert in the law. You're the one that reads the scriptures day in and day out. Jesus turns the table to him and he says, why don't you answer your own question? How do you see the scripture? How do you read the scripture? See, Jesus wanted to see how does he read the word of God? Amen? Let them answer the question. Essentially, this lawyer is asking, how do I have relationship with God? Isn't that an absurd question from one who professes to be an expert in the law? Hasn't God revealed from Genesis all the way through how to have relationship with him? And yet this expert in the law is challenging Jesus, how do I have relationship everlasting forever and ever with God? And Jesus says, you have the word. It's so clear, isn't it? If you just confess your sins and live by faith, amen? Righteous have always lived by faith. Verse 27 continues to say, and the lawyer answered, quoting two Old Testament scriptures. The first one was, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. See, this is the answer. How do I have, what shall I do to have everlasting life, Jesus. Jesus says, what's the scripture say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Amen? Amen. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. See what Jesus said there? He says, he didn't talk about being in the really. He says, oh, fine. You want to come to me and say, what must I do to have everlasting life? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Yes, if you do that, you will live. See, Jesus understood that this man could do none of that apart from a living relationship with him. You cannot love your neighbor as yourself. You cannot love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength apart from relationship with Jesus Christ. If you want to get very frustrated Try to go out and love people as much as you love yourself. 
Go out and say, I'm going to love the Lord with all my heart and all my mind and all my strength. If you want to get frustrated, try to do that in your own strength. See, Jesus understood that the only way to accomplish these things, we talked about it in Philippians chapter 2, to do the good purposes and the will of God, Jesus has to do them through you. If you're going to love your neighbor as yourself, even if you want to love your spouse more than yourself, yourself has to be dealt with. Amen? And the only thing that can deal with self is the power of the Holy Spirit. That is salvation. Love thy neighbor as thyself. Put someone else's needs as before your own. You cannot do that unless your carnal nature, that sinful nature, that selfish nature must come under the control of the Holy Spirit of God, the very character of God himself. That is the only way. So Jesus here is a bit teasing the lawyer. He's saying, yes, go and do that and you'll live. He knew that that man tries to go out and do that. He's going to come to a place of frustration. And hopefully out of that frustration, he'll get on his knees and say, Lord, I can't do it. I can't do it. And I believe all of us have to come to that point in our lives where we say, Lord, I've tried every way to please you out of my own strength, out of my own intellect, out of my own emotions, out of my own resources, out of my own wallet. I've tried to please you. I've tried to obey the law. I've tried to be perfect. I can't do it. And Jesus says, now you're in a position to listen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. We got to come to the end of ourselves. We got to come to that place where we are utterly depleted and empty, naked and poor. And we look around and say, I have nothing to offer this relationship, Lord. I am totally dependent on you. I cannot do the will of God. I cannot do the law. I cannot do it. I need you. And now we've gone from a place of doing to a place of being. Being in Christ. Hallelujah. That's what the lawyer needs. He must be in Christ. He must be born again. He must be in the vine. Abiding in the vine. And then he can do the good pleasure of God. So Jesus here affirms that if we will do this, you will indeed inherit eternal life. Verse 29, I see this almost, and this is just my visual thing. Jesus replies, yes, if you do this, you'll inherit eternal life. And I see Jesus kind of walking away from the lawyer now. And the lawyer says, "Uh -uh. uh-uh, uh-uh. But Jesus, who is my neighbor? So here it says that he wants to justify himself. The lawyer's in a place where he's not pleased with that answer. He knows he can't do it. He knows he cannot love the Roman Empire and the people in the Roman Empire as himself. He's caught in a problem now that there's prejudice and bias in his life. You see, if you say, Lord, who is my neighbor? The question itself necessitates that he's biased and prejudiced. Or he wouldn't have to answer the question. He's saying to basically to Jesus, I'm in a problem here. I have neighbors, but who is my neighbor? Who qualifies as a neighbor? Is the Roman centurions and soldiers that are walking down the streets every day, are they my neighbor? Well, how about these Samaritans who we have hated for years and years? Are they my neighbor? Who Jesus is my neighbor? He wanted to justify himself. The Greek word, dikaiou, says to show 
or to exhibit one to be righteous such as he wants and wishes himself to be considered. That's what that word justify means. He wanted to show his righteousness to Christ. He wanted to justify his religious position. And so he asked the Lord, Lord, who is my neighbor? See, Jesus constantly challenged the worldview of the first century. He constantly broke down the barriers. Even him talking to the Samaritan woman. That was breaking every cultural law and principle possible. One, a Jewish man would not talk to a woman in public. Two, you would never associate with a Samaritan. He constantly broke down the things, the cultural values that were apart from the culture of Jesus Christ. And he has called you and I to take the gospel and to beat down and to break down the standards of this culture that rides itself up against Jesus Christ. Remember when Apostle Hansen went into Japan and everyone counseled him, you don't do this and you do this and you don't do this and you're sensitive to this. He was just sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And he went with the word of God, direct and bold. And a missionary that had been there for years and years and was praying for one or two converts in a several meetings with the power of the Holy Spirit, tens and twenties gave their life to Jesus Christ. We got to be more sensitive to the Holy Spirit than sensitive to the cultural norms and values. Amen? We have got to be sensitive to Jesus Christ. See, Jesus constantly broke the standard. He constantly went against the standard that was set in the nation. Number one, the essential underlying motivation. This is what the lawyer was basically saying. Can I generate my own form of religion to suit my bias and my prejudice? Does my relationship with God necessitate a change in my worldview, a change in my opinions, values, and motivations? He's saying basically, Lord, can I have relationship and can I have the security that I have everlasting life and at the same time, can I maintain my prejudice and my bias and my hatred towards a certain type of people? You see, Lord, I hate these Samaritans and I hate this Roman Empire. And so I need you to do one thing for me, Lord. I can accept your word, but please qualify for me who my neighbor is. I'm comfortable, Lord, if you say it's my Jewish brethren. Okay, I'm okay with that. But if you say that I got to love these people and these people, wait a second now. You see, he was trying to introduce his own religion. And don't we as a church do that so often? We come and we try to incorporate our worldview and change the word of God. My Jesus, my Christianity. Amen? Oh, I'm not convicted by that. The word of God says so clearly, but Jesus hasn't convicted me of that. How many times do we hear it and how many times are we all guilty of that time in our lives where we try to pervert the word of God? Where we try to take our prejudice and our biases and even our hurts from our past and make our own Christianity. And this lawyer was basically offering Jesus, saying, Jesus, I would even maybe even consider following you, but please justify my bias, my opinions and my philosophies. So Jesus, in verses 30 through 35, replies this way. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho where he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, 
When he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on the oil and the wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have had. See, the priests and the Levites were well respected in the community of Israel. And Jesus here is really separating here. He's taking what would consider the lowest, the Samaritan, the repulsive people. You see, the Samaritans were basically an off-branch, a sect of Jerusalem, of Jews. But they would only accept the first five books in the Bible. They would not go to Jerusalem for the feast. They set up on Mount Gerizim, their own temple, their own priest, and everything else. They really separated way back before Christ from the Jewish nation. And there was a lot of hatred and animosity between him. And so Jesus, in picking the Levite and the priest, is taking the ones that are most respected and honorable in the community, and he's taking the least, the lowliest, the hated, and he's making an example out of, isn't he? Amen? You see, you look at the Samaritan, and the Samaritan had three things that he was able to offer this man. The first thing that he was able to offer him was time. You see, if you want to show compassion and pity, if you want to be a conduit of the love of Jesus Christ, you got to have time to do it. Amen? If you have no time in your schedule, if you're so regimented, so busy, see, I like that word busy. You know what? Because it means busy under Satan's yoke. So whenever someone says, how you doing? I say, how you doing? Oh, I'm real busy. I, I usually smile inside and say, that's too bad. Amen? Because if you're too busy, you're too busy to have compassion. You see, the Samaritan here had to spend quite a bit of time. He spent time pouring in the oil and the wine, bandaging up the wounds, putting him on the donkey, taking him to the inn. He had to take time to minister. Do you have the time to minister and to show compassion and love? I believe that most of the time that we walk right by a hurting person, a needful person, the person who's fallen in the pit, the person who's been killed, robbed, and stolen by the devil, we walk right past them because our minds are already on the next appointment. We got to have time to be able to minister. You see, Jesus always had time, didn't he? Jesus only had three and a half years to disciple 12 men. And Jesus always had time to minister where he was supposed to minister. We got to evaluate our time. And the first thing that I got to encourage you to do is if you're not spending time with Jesus Christ every day, you're not going to have time for the man in the ditch. You say, I got so much to do. Martin Luther said the same thing. He said, I have so much to do today, Lord, that I've got to spend three hours in prayer with you today. You see, there's so many things we can do. You need the wisdom, the anointing of God to figure out what you're supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do. Right. See, what happens in Christendom, we just fill up our schedules with all these things to do. Instead of concentrating on the being in Christ Jesus, we concentrate in the doing. 
We fill our schedules up with doing, but we don't have the being parts. I call that religion. External works without internal relationship. But the church is so caught up in this. If I just do these things, I'm okay. You're okay. Praise the Lord. The Lord's good, isn't he? Praise God. You know, we get into Christianese. Inside, we're dead, decaying. Our soul is not getting fed and transformed by the living God. We're trying to do all these works and these do, 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 do without the internal transformation of Jesus Christ. And inside, we're depressed and frustrated. But as soon as we see that Christian coming down the street, we put on that smile. Hey, brother, how's it going? Praise God, it's going good. As soon as they walk by, you know, just back to the moldrums. You know? I always see it. You walk into the grocery store and you see someone from your, the church and you just watch them as they're coming towards you. They're just kind of like, and as soon as they see you, hey there, Pastor Ty, how's it going? Praise God, praise God, hallelujah. And you know, as soon as you walk by, you know, groceries are so expensive these days. You know, man, I gotta hurry up here. It, that's how we are. You will wear yourself out in your Christian works if you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Friends, do you have time to do the work of God? Not what you consider the work. I'm not talking about soul-initiated works, what your mind thinks is reasonable, what my emotions want to do. I'm talking about what Jesus Christ has passion within you to do. Do you know that work? Every single day, do you have the agenda by Jesus Christ? This I want you to do today. This I want you to do today. Get the work orders at the beginning of the day. Hallelujah. Concentrate first and foremost on being in Christ Jesus. And if you'll concentrate on that, if you'll give him a tithe of your time, first thing in the day, then he will speak through you. He will be able to start to look at the things in your life and to start to differentiate the urgent matters from the important matters. And my goal is not going to the tyranny of the urgent today, though I'm tempted. But we catch ourselves up in doing so many quote-unquote urgent things that we never do the important thing. We never invest in our relationship with others. We never have the time to minister to other people. And so the people just sit by in the road being beat up by Satan and beat up by this world and we just pass by because we don't have the time and we don't have that relationship with Christ to be able to have the eyes to see it and pull them out of the ditch. we got to have time. The Good Samaritan had time. The Good Samaritan had a relationship with the Lord because the Lord was able to show compassion and pity out of him. He had that within him. You cannot give compassion and pity if it's not in you. you got to have the love of Christ in you before you can minister it out. Remember the whole pump phenomenon. Jesus has got to flow in the love of Christ. The agape love of Jesus. It's got to come in and then you can minister it out. You can't demonstrate compassion and pity of the Lord's to be able to see the spiritual needs of people if you yourself aren't getting ministered to by the Lord. There's a principle in scriptures that you only produce after your own kind. If you want to give out spiritual seed, you better get the spiritual seed from on high. Hallelujah. Or what happens sometimes in your own human compassion and pity, if you're not sensitive to the Holy Spirit, what will happen is you'll have some beggar in the street and you say, okay, I'll give you 10 bucks to justify my own conscience. He goes down the store and buys alcohol. 
See, the world does not need your human love or your human compassion and pity. What it needs is the compassion and love of Jesus Christ. It needs the agape love of God transforming your heart to put you down and Jesus up to lift up Christ in your life so the shackles of deception can come on and you can see the spiritual needs and hurts of people. You see, that beggar on the road needs more than your 10 bucks. What he needs is an encounter with Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. I rarely ever give money to any beggar unless I just feel this huge compulsion of the Holy Spirit. Apart from that, ha, no. I'll give him a church flyer and say, why don't you come to church and meet Jesus Christ? I'll do something that will change his position. Hallelujah. I have no problem saying, maybe come in my car and I'll take you down to a fast food restaurant and buy you a meal. But I'm not going to give you $10 and say, well, he'll be a good steward of that $10. That's foolishness. Amen? If you want to minister to a person like that, then you've got to, in a practical way. But if he's a drug addict, an alcoholic, or whatever else, you're just going to feed that. You're feeding his flesh. You're not helping him. You're hurting him. We've got to have spiritual eyes and discernment to see, to flow with the love of Jesus Christ for the moment. You will never be able to do that unless you spend the time with Jesus Christ. See, the Samaritan, he had relationship with God. The love of God could flow out of him. And he had time in his schedule to minister to the need. A third thing that he had is he had resource, didn't he? He had the resource to meet the needs of the person in the ditch. He was able to pour in the oil and the wine. He had the oil and the wine. He was able to bandage the wounds and bring them back together. He had the donkey to be able to transport them. He had the money to be able to put him in the inn and say, here, here's two days' wages. See, two days' wages, if an average person makes $30,000 a year, two days' wages is about $250 for two days. He had the resource to be able to meet the needs. Hallelujah. Some needs we can't make because we don't have the resource to do it. Some needs we can't meet because we don't have the time to do it. Some needs we can't meet because we don't have the love of God within us to flow out and touch. We got to evaluate the areas of our lives, how we're spending our resource, and you say, well, I don't have the need, I don't have the resource to be able to minister in that area. But ask yourself, why don't you have the resource? Why don't you have the extra so when an urgent matter comes up, when a person is sick, when a person is in need, that you cannot minister that resource? Amen? Yeah. We got to have the resource to meet needs. Amen? We got to have it. And we must evaluate our lives. This is not a sermon about financial stewardship, but I want to make the point that in the same way that we must tithe our time unto the Lord so we can hear from the Lord, be transformed by the Lord, if you're not giving the tithe of your income to the Lord, then you are robbing from God himself. You have no faith. And I am almost 100% convinced that a person who doesn't tithe consistently doesn't spend time consistently with Jesus Christ. Amen? If you don't have the faith to take 10% and put it in an offering then you don't have the faith to believe that in your busy schedule, if you pull back an hour or two, that you're going to be able to accomplish more. It takes more faith to sacrifice your time than it does your money. It's easier for me just to say, here, throw it in the bucket. But to me to pull back and say, I'm going to spend an hour with God today and let him speak to me and transform my life. If you don't have the faith for the one, you don't have faith for the other. Hallelujah. I can almost guarantee that if every single person in this body 
If they are tithing unto the Lord faithfully, they're set up for a successful tithing of their time to Jesus Christ. We've got to have the resource. Let God bless you financially. If you're in a financial bind right now, can I encourage you to do one thing? Seek some counsel. Amen? Counsel is good. Find somebody in the congregation that you know has done it right and seek their counsel. If I'm going to go build a house and I don't know how to do it, I'm going to seek the counsel from someone in this congregation that knows how to build a house. If you're stumbling in your financial walk, if you have debts and credit and you're all confused and there's this pressure weighing on you and you just kind of avoid it and put it back and put it back thinking, well, maybe if I just don't look at it, it'll go away. Oh, hallelujah, it does not go away, does it? Yeah, the interest grows and the, and the burden grows and the yoke grows and it presses on you and you're frustrated and you're stressed and you're anxiety and you have headaches and diarrhea and all the stuff that I see every day. <laughs> Amen? Amen. Let the Lord take that yoke off of you. You know how it starts? Repentance. Lord, forgive me for mismanaging your funds. I recognize, Lord, that I am not my own, but I have been purchased. That I've been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. And I don't own anything. I'm a steward of my life. I'm a steward of my finances. They're really yours, Lord. I ask you to forgive me for mismanaging my life and my funds that you have given me. Help me, Lord. And then you go seek counsel from someone that knows how to do it and help them to lay out a budget for you so you have extra to bless. Amen? What happened when the need arises in this congregation? How are we going to meet the need of someone that's in an urgent matter? If someone needs their job, they get fired or laid off, and all of a sudden they have rent due, how is this congregation going to meet the needs of our brothers and sisters if we don't have the resource to do it? You can have all the compassion you want, but compassion itself don't pay the bill. We've got to have the resource, and that comes by good stewardship. Amen? That'll preach. I shouldn't go any farther on that one. So there's three things that the Samaritan had. He had relationship and the love of God could flow. He had time to meet the need. And he had the resource to meet the need. We have got to have all three in our lives. I want to talk for a minute. That was the practical aspects of the parable of the Good Samaritan. But I want to go into a little bit of an evangelistic thrust. Is that okay, Dr. Mike? Amen. <laughs> From our evangelist, I want to really speak about the character of God through the parable of the Sermon on the Mount. I want to take the parable and I want to look at it figuratively. Everyone say figuratively. figuratively. Everyone say allegory. allegory. You know, allegory can sometimes be bad and it can sometimes be good. You ever know what an allegory is? It's really a form of figurative speech. You know, Paul used it several times. Remember, Paul talked about Sarah and Hagar. I think it's in Galatians chapter 4. He talked about Sarah and Hagar, and he says that's two different covenants of a free man and a slave man. Amen? He was using an allegory on the life of Sarah and Hagar. I want to use a bit of figurative speech here to talk about the love of God and how he has come and seen the needs that we have of and he's met our needs. The man that was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. All right? Are you with me? Yeah. There's a man, he starts out in Jerusalem. Say Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem elevation-wise, was it the 
Low or was it high relative to Jericho? Who knows? Who knows? Who's took in their geography of biblical lands? Huh? <laughs> it's high. So Jerusalem, we know, is a type of what? Heaven. A new heavens, a new earth, a new Jerusalem, Zion. If you look at the prophetic literature of the Bible, it's the place where Jesus is coming back, amen? amen. And he's going to set his foot down on the Mount of Olives and it's going to split from the west to the east. And I tell you what, that's going to be a great day. Amen. And you're going to hear that foot stomp and you're going to hear that trumpet flow. But Jerusalem is high in elevation and is always typified with divinity in heaven and scripture. And this man starts out in Jerusalem. The man represents mankind, you and me. And he takes on a path and he starts walking towards where? Towards Jericho. I don't know if you know where Jericho is, but Jericho is not too far from the Dead Sea. Okay? So we're talking elevation-wise. One of the lowest points on this planet is Jericho. And he's taking a path to Jericho. And as he walks along, he finds himself in a problem. He is attacked by robbers and left half dead. The robbers, of course, are who? Spiritual, we're talking spiritual reality here. The robbers, who comes to rob, kill, and destroy? Satan and his demons come to rob, kill, and destroy. So this man starts out in divinity. You could even use the Garden of Eden. And on his journey... He is attacked by Lucifer and he is robbed, killed, and destroyed and left half dead. So the human race is alive physically, but spiritually, apart from Jesus Christ, we are what? We are dead. We are dead to the ways of God. Spiritually, we are disconnected from Jesus Christ, but the blood of the Lord. Amen? The blood of Jesus, that born-again experience where you confess your sin and repent of your sin, say, Lord, I need a Savior. I've tried to do your will. I cannot do it. I receive you as my Lord and my Savior. That's the only way we can be born again. Apart from Christ, physically we're alive, but spiritually we are dead. We are half dead. Are you staying with me? So the priest happens to come down... Now, the priest represents what? What does the priestly people do? They do the sacraments. They offer the sacrifices of the Old Testament, the bulls, the calves, and all that. And he comes up to the man who is half dead. Picture this. The man is dying. Put yourself on a road. You're driving down the road, and you see someone in the ditch, and he is half dead. And the priest comes up and he sees the man who's half dead and he says, I'm walking across the road. You see, the priest could not help this man. The Old Testament sacrifices, the bulls and the goats cannot help this man. Amen? The Levite is right behind him. The Levite represents really the Mosaic law, the law of God. And this man is in spiritual deadness. This man is half dead and the law comes up and says, I can't help you. The law cannot help that man. Are you with me? The priest and the Levite cannot help this man. See, this man's need, in a spiritual sense, figuratively speaking, is not just physical. It is a spiritual need. He is dead in his trespasses and sins. He has wounds and areas of hurt in his life, spiritually and emotionally, and he cannot be helped by the law itself. He cannot be helped by an Old Testament sacrifice. So the Samaritan, of course, is who? 
Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? It says in the Gospels that the religious leaders were so angry with Jesus. They're figuring out what name can we possibly call him to insult him as much as possible. So they, what do they call him? You're demon-possessed and you're a Samaritan. Remember that? I mean, it's just like childish games, you know? You know, your mother wears combat boots. You know, what, what's the thing that I can pull out that'll just shame this man and bring him down to his knees? You know? And all these things, you know, especially the men here, we all know how that goes when you're growing up in those adolescent years. How can we shame that guy with our words? And these men are so jealous and angry at Jesus because he's coming with such boldness and authority. He's looking right into their hearts. And their pride is so raising up, they're angry at Jesus. You're a demon-possessed and you're a Samaritan. Amen? So Jesus here is pictured as the good Samaritan. He is able to help the man and does so. How? He binds up the wounds of the man. That's what it says in Luke chapter 10. He binds up the wounds of the man. Psalm chapter 147, verses 1 through 3 says this. Praise the Lord! How good it is to sing praises to our God. How pleasant and fitting to praise Him. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the exiles of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Isn't that good? The Lord binds up our broken hearts, binds up our wounds. The good Samaritan in this parable finds the man who's half dead and he begins to bind up his wounds. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1 says the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to what? Bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness the prisoners. Hallelujah! He finds the man on Jericho Road and he starts to bind up the broken heart, to bind up the wounds, the spiritual and emotional needs of that person. He's also pouring in the oil and the wine. Amen? We sang about it on that Jericho road. He binds up the wounds and he pours in the oil and the wine. Oil is symbolic for what? Really anointing, isn't it? In the Old Testament, it would be represented in oil. But in the New Testament, we see it as what? The Holy Spirit. Amen? So he starts pouring in the oil, the spirits. We must be what? Born again. Born of what? Born of the spirits. The everlasting spirit. We must be born again. And so Jesus, the good Samaritan, starts pouring in the anointing. Hallelujah. The Messiah, the anointed one, starts pouring in the Holy Spirit. That's what that man needed. The man needed more than 10 bucks, more than a Band-Aid. What he needed is he needed some anointing. He needed the Holy Spirit. Wine, of course, symbolic of what? The blood. He starts not only pouring in the oil, but he pours in the wine. And he's saying that it's my blood that will heal your wounds. It's my blood 
that will bind up your wounds. It is my blood that will bring you close, a sinful man and a holy God. It is by my blood that that wound, that gap, that chasm can be brought back together again. See, Jesus started pouring in the oil and the wine. Hallelujah. Is that good news? Dr. Michael, that's a good evangelistic message. Praise the Lord. Yesterday, I took my children to the park, Heritage Park. And I've been praying for about the last six weeks. I said, Lord, show me the property that I can use to have some outdoor revival meetings next summer. And I've been looking around. And all of a sudden, I was sitting there, and my children are playing on the thing. And I looked around. And right next to Heritage Park, there's this huge field. I mean, it must have been 15 acres. Just empty. Freshly mowed down the, the hay. And the Lord says, go after that land. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And maybe we can start pouring in some oil and some wine to the people in the Stanwood Camano area. Amen? Amen. Praise the Lord. So wine is symbolic of blood and it pictures the Samaritan giving his own blood on the cross in order to heal the man. So once the immediate wounds are taken care of, the Samaritan puts the man on his own donkey. This pictures the abandonment of Jesus' throne in heaven, the donkey being symbolic of biblical kingship. Remember, Jesus later would what? Saddle a donkey and ride in. Finally, the Samaritan puts the man in the care of the innkeeper, paying him two silver coins for his help. The innkeeper is the Holy Spirit. See, the man was saved. The man's wounds, the man's separation from God were taken care of. Jesus poured in the oil and the wine. Jesus restored that man. And then Jesus took him and gave him to the innkeeper and he says, I will return and pay whatever's due you. The innkeeper is representative of the Holy Spirit who keeps us, amen? It ministers to us. We can be led by the Holy Spirit of God. And one day it'll present us to God. Jesus said, it's better for me to go because I'll send another comforter, another paraclete, a helper, the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus has entrusted us to the Holy Spirit, the third part of the Trinity of God. Hallelujah. And Jesus is coming back one day. Amen? He's coming back to Jerusalem. Amen? See, the parable of the Good Samaritan can speak to us in so many ways. It really speaks to us about bringing our biases and our prejudices in our own Christian walk. And say, Lord, not my will be done, not my prejudice or my bias or my opinions or my philosophy, but your will be done. See, his work is to transform you, not for you to transform him. Don't come and try to transform the word of God to make it more pleasant and comfortable for you. The parable of the Good Samaritan talks about that it has to be out of being that the doing happens. It's not about what you do, but who you are. It says in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21 that many will come to the Lord on that day and say, Lord, 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 haven't I done this and this and this and this? And Jesus will say to him, I never what? I never knew you. If that lawyer that approached Jesus Christ doesn't repent of his sin and ask Jesus Christ to be his Lord and his Savior, he will come to him one day and say, Lord, but didn't I do this? Didn't I teach your word? Wasn't I master in the law? Didn't I pay tithes and offerings? Didn't I do all these things? And Jesus says, I wanted to know you. I wanted to have a relationship with you. I wanted you to be my true child. Amen. Praise the Lord. 
It teaches us also that we must have both time, resource, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the love of God in us, before we can meet the needs of people. Many times we cannot meet their needs because we do not have the time, we don't have the resource, and we don't have the compassion and love of Christ flowing through us. We must recognize that if we want to meet the needs of this community, if we want to meet the needs in the people in this church, we've got to be filled with the presence of God. We've got to have the love, the joy, the peace, the goodness flowing through our lives. The parable of the Good Samaritan also tells us the evangelistic work of Jesus Christ, that it is only Jesus, our Good Samaritan, that can bind up our wounds and pour in the oil and the wine. It is only He and the ministry of the Holy Spirit that can keep us in Christ Jesus. If we will surrender our lives today to Jesus Christ, He'll pour in the oil and the wine. So verse 36 concludes by Christ turns and goes at the heart of the matter. And it's interesting, He says, which of these three was a neighbor? You see, the original question by the lawyer was, who is my neighbor? Who is the object that I must minister to? But Jesus, after telling this parable, says, which one of the three was the neighbor? He takes it from a noun almost into a verb adjective. Who was the neighbor? Who was the righteous person? Who was the one that went out and poured in the oil and the wine? Who was the one that showed compassion? Get off the thing of doing if I just do this, this, and this. To be a neighbor is to flow with the love of God. Who was the neighbor? And that lawyer was so prejudiced and so biased that he couldn't utter the name Samaritan from his, if it was a multiple choice test, Dean Roberts, it would have been A, the Levite, B, the priest, or C, the Samaritan. Jesus was asking, which one of these three was the neighbor, the good neighbor, the righteous neighbor? The Levite, the priest, or the Samaritan? And that lawyer was so uncomfortable, he could not say the word Samaritan. It was the guy that showed the mercy. So prejudiced and so biased. Didn't he want to utter the word Samaritan? Christ's question focused on the would-be disciple and not the object. It focused on the being rather than on the object of doing. Go and do likewise. Again, it's impossible apart from salvation and discipleship of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. I believe that part of this revival that God wants to bring to this dead society, this nation that is backsliding towards Sodom and Gomorrah, it's going to happen when we have put ourselves in a position to be able to minister to the needs right here. If we can't meet each other's needs, how can we meet the needs of society? If we don't have the time, energy, and resource to help each other out, how do we have any authority to go out and meet the needs of others? It's the same principle. If I can't raise my children, I shouldn't be going out trying to raise someone else's children. We have got to meet the needs right here. We have got to see our brothers and our sisters here that need some compassion, need some pity, need some of your time, maybe some of your resource. They need it. And when we start to meet the needs, God's going to empower us to transform the society. Right here is where it starts. We must love one another. We must evaluate our schedules and make sure that our schedules are God-inspired and not man-driven. 
I tell you what, if you start checking your priorities and where you're spending your time, and if you start making some changes in that, God starts giving you some direction and focus on putting the, the first thing, the first thing. He starts to transform that thing. I tell you what, there will be some persecution against you. It may come from spouse or children. It may come from even church. But I tell you what, it'll set you free. Don't get caught up on the doing, but get caught up on being in Christ Jesus. Hear his voice so you know which tables to serve and which ones to stay far away from. Amen? We have got to meet each other's needs. If you want to see the mission field, it starts by the neighbor right next to you. Praise the Lord. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the other ends of the world. We've got to help each other right here. Amen? As someone comes and plays the piano, I want to encourage you to check the areas of your time with Jesus Christ, your schedules, and your financial position. Say, Lord, would you help me to be empowered to serve? Are you in a position to meet needs of others? Ask the Lord to show you areas where you can start making some transfers. Make sure that everything that you're doing in your life, the doings of your life, are birthed out of relationship with Jesus Christ. If you're busy just doing your schedule and you're saying, I'm busy, I'm full, I'm full, I'm full, and you say it in your heart right now, but I'm not spending any time with Jesus Christ, I'm saying you're in bondage. And I'm saying you're the only person that has the power to change that. You must present yourself to God and say, Lord, forgive me. I've gotten to this place of bondage with my time and perhaps even my finances. I don't have the time. I have not made the time to spend with you. That is not the will of God for your life, amen? He wants to know you. He wants to speak to you. You've got to give him time. You've got to present you. If you won't do that, then you'll take the easy, the pragmatic. I'll just fill my time with doing stuff. Don't get caught up in that. Remember the whole discourse between Mary and Martha where one is busy serving and doing all this stuff and the other is just at his feet worshiping him. And the person that draws back to spend time with Jesus, the person that's all hurried about doing all the things, the things, the things, the things, they'll get upset and angry with the person who's just bowing their knee and worshiping Jesus Christ. Remember that story? Lord, I'm doing all this stuff and she's just sitting at your feet. And Jesus says what? She has chosen the better. You'll get persecution if you get your life in divine order. You will be persecuted. People will misjudge you. When you start to pull out of the things that you shouldn't be involved with, you'll get persecution. But you know what's the only thing that'll set you free? from the tyranny of urgency in your life. This church will only be functional if we're doing the things that God has ordained us to do. If you're trying to serve tables that God has not commissioned you to, this will be a dysfunctional body. Amen? Let Jesus reveal to you the things that you are to be involved with. And the things that you're not to be involved with, I'd rather you not do them. Amen? For some, that's a tough word because you've been so long in this bondage of your time. See, all the pressures, the external things, 
the fears and the trepidations. If I ever was to take that word and it actually started in court, oh, the things that would happen. Oh, the storms that would rage. Oh, the persecution I would get. You know, they yelled at Jesus too because of how he chose to use his time. Remember when Lazarus was dying? Amen? And Jesus said to his disciples, nah, we're not going to go there now. We're going to go somewhere else and preach. And then finally when he came to Lazarus, Lazarus had died. And the sisters of Lazarus were angry at Jesus. See, the way that you choose your time won't always be well received. You will get persecution, even from those you love. But if it's from God, they'll start to see the fruit in your life. And you can't argue with fruit. Amen? Where you had no compassion and you had no sensitivity. Now all of a sudden, mom or dad has the love of Christ flowing out of them. You can't argue with that. Do you have time for compassion and love? If you don't, reevaluate your time today. When you come up here, just spend a couple minutes with God. Say, Lord, forgive me for managing my own time or managing my own finance. May I make you Lord and Savior of my time and my finance. Then he'll empower you to service. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I still feel, Pastor Mike, that there's a couple in this place that in the back of their minds are saying it can't happen, it won't work. But all I can say to you today is the people around you that put pressures on your time in your life, they are not going to be the one who judges you on Judgment Day. We're learning in our life groups about the great white throne judgment and actually the what? The judgment seat of Christ. Where for those who are believers or are in Christ Jesus, Jesus will evaluate our lives to give rewards. And you cannot put any person, spouse, pastor, children, or anyone else is not going to justify it. It's going to be you and God. And you must answer to him alone. Amen? Amen. The potential conflict now is much better than the disappointment one day before God. Let's evaluate ourselves today. If you need to make changes in your life, if you say, my wife and I don't have the time for intimacy, can I say you have a problem in your marriage? Can I say you have a problem in your time management? Because man didn't, God didn't bring man and woman together to have this kind of two boats passing in this kind of like roommate's relationship. See, I grew up in a family and a mom and dad that had a roommate's mentality. I didn't see intimacy growing over time. I saw two ships going back and forth and kind of waving as they went by. That's not the will of God for your marriage. The will of God for your marriage is to have enough time, not selfish time, but time to develop a relationship and intimacy together. Apart from your relationship with Christ, a man and a woman's relationship is the most important relationship on earth. And if you don't have time to invest into it, you know what breeds out of that? Frustration, anger, bitterness, resentment. That is not the will of God. We must evaluate our time with our spouse, 
and with our children. If you're not raising your children, may I ask you, who is raising your children? If it's not you, mom and dad? Is it children's church? Is it the public school? Is it the daycare center? Who is raising your children? Who is showing them the ways of God? If it's not you, mom and dad, who? And I say this in the most gentlest pastoral voice I can. You are a steward of your children. And how you raise them, how you treat wife or how you treat husband and how you nurture each other, God is very interested in that. He is very interested. If you say, well, I'm going on mission trips, I'm preaching, I'm going to go to Jamaica, I'm going to go do this, I got this ministry at World Ministries Internet, I've got all these things. But then you say, but I have a dysfunctional relationship with my wife and my children are a mess. There's a problem. Amen. That's a problem. God would rather you say, I'm not going to Jamaica, I'm pulling back a little bit of my time so I can get it right. Because if you're married and your ministry, whether you like it or not, is going to be propelled by your spouse or bald and chained by your spouse. Well, I'm starting to start like pastor here. I got to calm down just a little bit. Just a little bit maybe, huh? <laughs> I just want to encourage you. I know just about everyone in here and I know you pretty well and I know your grumblings and your busyness. I know it. And there's a few people that I'm speaking to, especially right now. I pray that you would take this encouragement and do it right. Be willing to suffer persecution. Amen? Husband, dad, who is the greatest advocate for your family? You. You are the greatest advocate for your family. You cannot rely on any pastor or any apostle or any prophet or any church leader. You cannot rely on anyone to be a greater advocate for your family than you. You. If you're not willing to speak up for your family, who's going to speak up for your family? Now, I'm not talking about selfishness. I believe that there's many people that spend all sorts of time with their family, but they're so dysfunctional. A time in itself doesn't heal nothing. You got to be equipped with the Word of God. You got to make sacrifices sometimes to be in Bible school classes or whatever it takes so the Word of God and the ministers of God can transform your life. I believe in that kind of sacrifice. Amen? I believe, men, about being at men's prayer if you're able to. I don't believe in the excuse of, oh, I went, to, I, I went to bed so late or I worked so hard. Yes, therefore you need to be there. That's right. Amen? Because the ones that make excuse about I was too busy, if you ask them, how much in that busy schedule did you take for Christ that day? Oh, none. I was too busy. We have got to be advocates. You're not going to have anyone standing next to you at the judgment seat of Christ saying, well, this is what they expected of me and this is what they expected of me and this is what they expected of me. 
Jesus is going to say, I gave you my word, my Holy Spirit, I gave it to you. Why didn't you use it? I gave you every resource that you needed for godly living. And one thing that I'm tired of, and as I, hopefully it's a righteous anger, not a fleshly anger, is I'm tired of people telling me they're too busy. If you don't gather anything from what was said today, if you're too busy, you're in sin. Oh, we don't like that word, but it's sin. If you're too busy to have a relationship with God, to spend time in the Word, then time in His presence, that is not the will of God for your life. Our doing must be exploded out of our relationship with Him. How many times has Apostle Hanson said it? Amen? And if you're not willing to do it, if you're not willing to put your tithe of your life and say, Lord, here I am, before I do, I'm going to be. I'm going to be your child. I'm going to let you speak to me and transform me. Then the shackles in your eyes will start to come off and you'll see what you're supposed to do. God will say, you need to invest a little more time in your relationship with your wife. Do you see the dysfunction? Do you see the frustration? Do you see the bitterness and anger she has against you? Go first and reconcile that. Don't tell me about trips to Jamaica. Eh? You can't minister out of your dysfunction. You can't bless too much out of dysfunction. Make it right at home. If you haven't treated your wife properly, haven't given her the amount of time you need, ask her to forgive you. Amen. Ask her to forgive you. Say, I'm going to make it right. I'm going to make it right. If you haven't given the amount of discipleship that your children need, and you look at your children and say, they're hurting. They're lost. My child is whatever age. They don't know how to pray. They're uncomfortable praying. They just have a hard time. Ask your child. I don't care if he's three years old. Get on your knees and say, will you forgive me for not spending the time that I should with you? We've got to get back to the basics, friends. I'm all into church ministry. I'm all into serving the body. But there's too many people. What was it? Was it Spurgeon or? I think it was Spurgeon, if correct me if I'm wrong, that at the end of his life, when he saw all the influence he had on the body of Christ and he pitied over the fact that his two sons never received Jesus Christ. Spurgeon, the soul winner. Yet he says, I failed basically my family. Let's not be there, amen? Let's commit our lives and our time and our resources to Jesus Christ. Because when he empowers you to serve in an area with the power of the Holy Spirit, your ministry will make room for you and it will take off. But if you're serving tables and keeping busy and all this stuff and you're frustrated, you're dead in the inside, you're grumbling, you're complaining. That's a dysfunctional body. Let's do it God's way, amen? amen. That's Pastor Buckhart's encouragement for you. Don't do it your way, do it God's way. Amen. You don't know his ways. You must go to him to learn his ways. 
be convicted right now by the Holy Spirit. It's okay. If you're not spending time in the Word of God, if you're not spending time in worship, in the praise of your God, it's okay to be convicted. Be convicted. You're supposed to be convicted. Present yourself to God and say, Lord, I have not spent time with you. I have not done it right. And therefore, I've been so caught up in busyness and urgencies that I haven't ministered to my wife or my husband or my children. I am dysfunctional. Oh, God, help me. Come to the end of your doing and concentrate on the being in the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform your mind. He'll transform your will. He'll transform your emotions. And then you'll be able to see clearly to go do. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I could speak so long. But I don't want to badger you. I want you to respond in some way to God. We've prayed before the service. Every single person here has different needs. Your needs are not the same as my needs. My shortcomings, my failures are not the same as yours, but we have one God and the power of the Holy Spirit. And then when the Spirit of God came on Pentecost, it separated into cloven tongues of fire. The same Spirit broke and touched each person the way they needed to be touched. And we prayed that way today, that through the worship today, through the expression of praise, through the Word of God, that Jesus by his Holy Spirit would rest on each person and touch them the way they needed to be touched. However God might be ministering to you today, will you respond to the Holy Spirit of God? If it's about your time, let it be your time. If it's about your compassion, let it be your compassion. Is it about your money, be it your money. Whatever it is, respond to God today. Be changed by God today. Ask him to forgive you and to cleanse you. Receive the Holy Spirit of God into your life, afresh and anew today. Let's respond to Jesus Christ today. Thanks for listening to this episode of Warning Radio with Dr. Jonathan Hansen, founder and president of World Ministries International. Warning Radio is a listener-supported program. We need your donations in order to continue airing these Christ-centered prophetic programs. Send your checks or money orders to World Ministries International, Post Office Box 277, Stanwood, Washington, 98292. To donate securely by phone, call 360-629-5248. Visit our website to find other ways of giving and a wealth of information about World Ministries International and host Dr. Jonathan Hansen. The website is worldministries.org. There, you'll also have access to hundreds of previously aired radio programs, made-for-television videos, thousands of articles, Dr. Hansen's books, and travel itinerary. Again, the website is worldministries.org. The phone number is 360 629 
1-800-242-5248. Remember, the Lord is not slow about the promise of His return, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for everyone to come to the repentance that leads to eternal life.